Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 268 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature highly acclaimed actor, playwright, and lyricist, among other things, David Kale. We have a really wonderful conversation with David regarding his journey from England to the West Village and ultimately to Broadway, and of course, a few points in between. We focus a bit on his present-day project, a really excellent one, according to most all critics. Right now, he has a one-man show at the Manetta Lane Theater in New York City, of course, called Harry Clark, which features the great Tony Award-winning actor Billy Crudup. We also discuss a little bit of philosophy regarding art and the human experience. I think you'll enjoy it. David Kale today on the program. We also have an EWSA by yours truly called Still, and our associate producer once again has crafted a very poignant and introspective piece titled Kiss Today Goodbye. Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, will be sharing that. We also have a poem called Hooray! And, of course, as is always the case, all of this will be infused with the brilliant energy of several great tunes. Thanks for being here. Let's get to it. Episode 268 of Troubadours and... Rock on tours. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top, back on top in June I said that's life, that's life. And as funny as it may seem Some people get their kicks Stomping on a dream But I don't let it, let it get me down Cause this fine old world, it keeps spinning around I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out And I know one thing, each time I find myself flat on my face I pick myself up and get back in 
That's life. That's life. I tell you, I can't deny it. I thought of quitting, baby, but my heart just ain't gonna buy it. And if I didn't think it was worth one single try, I'd jump right on a big bird and then I'd fly. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. I've been up and down and over and out, and I know one thing. Each time I find myself playing flat on my face, I just pick myself up and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. And I can't deny it Many times I thought of cutting out But my heart won't buy it But if there's nothing shaking Come this here July I'm gonna roll myself up In a big ball And Still, from a series called Stop Being a Robot, this is part one. Happiness can be directly correlated with a community's sense of justice and merit-based opportunity. Conversely, if a community is plagued by corruption, small-mindedness, nepotism, the so-called crab bucket effect, and other similar types of human approaches to living... Those folks feel like shit more often than not. Couple that with long periods of overcast weather patterns, and you end up with high levels of despair. Drug and alcohol abuse, bad eating, domestic dysfunction, etc. My neck of the woods is of these tendencies from institution to institution family to neighborhood to government to workplace is yours too if so what can one do and if not please share what can one do we all talk about living right being good so how though can such despairing circumstances in society still be prevalent? Who and what is right? How do we define and actually live good lives? It is my understanding some of the places on earth with the highest recorded so-called happiness indexes are found in Scandinavia and also in relatively insulated villages across the globe, where the sun shines perhaps a bit more on the lobes. Why not in my town, my state, my country? Life is too precious and short to get lost in a vortex of self-inflicted pain. 
via a mistaken cultural outlook in the pursuit of greater and greater material gain. And here we are still, just the same.
Hello, David Kale. Is that you? It is I. Hi, it's C.W. Conundrum from Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Hi. Thanks for being on the program, sir. I'm happy to be on the program. <laughs> well, before we <laughs> before we get started, let me share a little background information for the listeners. Here we go. David Kale, playwright, actor, lyricist, among other things. David wrote the book, lyrics, co-composed the music, and played Floyd in his musical Floyd and Clea Under the Western Sky at the Goodman Theater. David has also written for the stage the solos Lillian, Somebody Else's House, Deep in a Dream of You, Smooch Music, and the Red Throats. Excuse me. Flo Floyd and Clea Under the Western Sky went on to run in New York at Playwrights Horizons, receiving an Outer Critics Circle nomination for Outstanding New Off-Broadway Musical. Lillian also ran at Playwrights Horizons, receiving an Obie Award, and Deep in a Dream of You ran at the Public Theater, receiving a Bessie Award for Outstanding Creative Achievement. Lillian was also recorded live for National Public Radio's This American Life. David has written lyrics for songs sung by artists including Debbie Harry and Elvis Costello. As an actor, Mr. Kale's films and television credits include The Slaughter Rule, Pollock, and The Good Wife. He has performed in plays on Broadway and off, most recently The Total Bent at the Public Theater. A work in progress of We're Only Alive for a Short Amount of Time was recently part of the 2018 Under the Radar Festival at the Public Theater. His newest solo work, Harry Clark, starring Pilly Billy Crudup, one of my favorites, premiered off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater and is currently running at the Mineta Lane Theater. Ladies and gentlemen, David Kill. I don't know if we have any more time now after that intro to talk, but hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty impressive, sir. Um, thank you. And uh, I'd like to get right in by asking you a question uh, about how you came into writing and acting. How did, how did you end up where you are as an artist writing and acting? Uh, I started singing when I was a teenager with uh, a rock band in England called Cold Eye Driver and like a little local rock band. And then I started uh, singing in pubs and did a little bit of, sort of busking on the street, but singing other people's songs. And then when I moved to America, I was singing in different clubs, but always other people's songs. And I realized it just wasn't working for me. It, it wasn't the songs, while they were not very good songs, they weren't as resonant for me emotionally as I needed the songs to be. And, and it wasn't something that was getting a very strong response from an audience. So I, I set myself a deadline to write a batch of three songs in a month and accompanying myself on the guitar, which I didn't play the guitar. So I, I bought a guitar and I managed to to sketch out these three songs and I performed them at Folk City, which was uh, a legendary folk club in the, in the West Village in New York City that had this open mic on a Monday night, basically. So, and a friend of mine was in the audience uh, and he said, I think, think the lyrics are better than the melodies go to the St. Mark's Poetry Project and read them they have like an open mic one night a month or whatever it was mm -hmm. 
and I read them the, the lyrics as as like mini monologues. And then somebody there said, take them to West Bedfield in the West Village, and they have an evening of performance exploration. And before I knew it, these songs evolved into monologues, which, and I started writing stories that got more and more dramatic. And before I knew it, I was doing these sort of one-person shows. It was very organic, the way the whole thing evolved. And then I went back to adding songs and adding live music to the, the monologues and, and and ultimately making these sort of music theater pieces and musicals and, and still doing the solo shows alongside. And then acting evolved from people seeing me in my own show, asking me to audition for things or asking me to be in things. And then I started acting. I started initially in films. I, I didn't do a play for for many years. I'd done, I'd done quite a few little parts in films, but I hadn't been in a play. And then in the mid-90s, I did a, a whole slew of plays almost back-to-back, I think half a dozen of them. So um, so I was going between acting and or doing, going between my own work and acting and, and sometimes writing lyrics for different singers. And it was a pretty eclectic mix of things. And, um, and then I sort of dipped into writing for dance companies. And I, I like to do a wide variety of things. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. Quite frankly, it is. It's a lot of fun, especially some of the collaborations, like working with people that I'm excited by, especially singers, or right now with Harry Clark, with Billy Crudup, um, and Lee Silverman directing. It's like a, these, these, these exciting collaborations are really, are really thrilling. Are really thrilling for me. Oh, and Harry Clark is is getting some or has gotten some really great reviews, both for the writing, the staging, and of course for for Billy Crudup's uh, portrayal of of the character, characters, I should say. And uh, you know that's that that must be exciting for you. It's really thrilling because I, I wanted I wanted Lee Silverman to direct it, and I wanted Billy Crudup to be in it, and they both miraculously, because it came together very, very quickly. They, um, they were both, A, available, or they made themselves available. And they wanted to do it. And I mean, they, well, they wanted to do it first, and then they made themselves available. They had, and they have, both of them have a lot going on, so it was a lot of finessing of schedules. But, but the two people that I wanted to work on it uh, are doing it. So it's, it's really swelling. And, and there were many nights when we started, I still couldn't believe I was watching Billy <laughs> perform my show because I just wanted him so badly and then he's doing it. And I didn't know him personally before, so it was, it was, um, it was quite disorienting in a very exciting way to actually see the person you dreamed of being in this role is in the role. And it was the first show that I performed I'd written, sorry, that I hadn't performed in also. So there was that. I'd never written a solo show that somebody else had performed. I'd performed all myself. So I'd never been in the audience. With So the whole thing has, has been really thrilling. And Lee, it's so deeply directed by Lee. And the design is so 
carefully thought out that I, I it feels like for my for like a, it's a perfect sort of physical production as well and what Lee has done with Billy this collaboration that they have is really extraordinary they're, and they're still working on it it's not like it suddenly got frozen and they're still mining it and they'll be in his in his dressing room and for 20 minutes like adding things and I added some things to the script just a couple of weeks ago so it's um, it's still very much a living thing and it's running and present getting better and better oh yes I, I'm sure of it I mean he's probably I mean, he must love what you've written and working with Lee of course as well directing him it's at the Mineta Lane Theater right now and it'll be there for a few more weeks I understand yeah, it's there, I think, until uh, May 13th. May Oh, May 13th, great. So yeah. people have time yeah. still. Yeah, he's, yeah, 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 he's really, Billy's really committed to it. And he really, you know, we, because we had, we ran at the, the, the Vineyard Theater for as long as we could run, and then, of course, they have another show coming in. So, uh, uh, we, but then Billy held his schedule till we could find a theater. You know, there, was, there was no theaters available initially. So, um, but Billy's been very committed to it and just hung in there till a theater became available and then we jumped into production again very quickly at the Minetta Lane. Well, let, um, let me ask you a question about, I, I, want, I want to get, because time goes by so quickly in our conversations. I want to make sure I get to certain things. I do uh, yep. appreciate your time. Um, the potential uh, of of going off on a tangent in so many different, uh, you know, with so many interesting ideas is so, so likely. I've come to get a little bit better at it. But here we go. How did you come into writing and acting we asked you about? Now I want to know a little deeper. What aspects of human existence do you find yourself revisiting in your work? Many of the shows or the monologues or the songs are about romantic relationships, and they they sort of the inner the inner lives of people in romantic settings, and a lot of a lot of the pieces are, are very peppered with people's thoughts as they're going through situations with another person, and. Um, so that's definitely something I come back to, like, like romance and desire, crop up many, many times in my in my work. <laughs> well, those are the eternal struggles and joys, I suppose, right? Both. Uh, so uh, that's why yeah. it resonates, I, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it's it's, it's the thing that always sort of captivated me. And. Um, so Harry Clark is no different. Harry Clark's a bit different. I mean, with Harry, I, I was very, I very consciously wanted to see if I could write a, as close as I could get to a one-man thriller. So there was, it's a different kind of story. I mean, it's one long story, um, as opposed to many of my shows are pieces assembled almost like an album, like there'll be like sort of 10 or 12 monologues or stories and they sort of sequence more like an album than anything else. But this one was more, it's more of, I, I think I was hoping for something that had more of the tension of a thriller 
and you didn't quite know where it was going to go or whether to completely trust the narrator. Um, so it's a, it's a bit different. It's a bit different all around. A thriller in the sense that is Harry like on the on the on the edge, ready to to lose it, or to find something, or both. Well, he's well. I mean, Harry. The thing about the thing about the show is, I mean, it's somebody from the Midwest. It's a very timid guy from the Midwest who can do a really good English accent, and he's much freed up, much more like uninhibited as playing this persona of a Cockney. And then Harry Clark, and he moves to New York, and presents himself as an English person. He's not, and then at one particular moment, slips into this character of Harry Clark in New York City, and that so it his life sort of makes a sudden left turn as this other person. So he is deceiving people uh, in a very uh, kind of film noir way and and um, so that's it, that's, it's a, that's a very different thing to anything I've ever done before and it, it does have the element of that is he going to commit a crime is he going to do something terrible and um, yeah running through it so he is on the edge. But on the other hand, he's really likable, and especially with Bill, in Billy's hands, because Billy is so charismatic and, and such a magnetic person. And when Billy smiles, I mean, it's like he's got that, I don't know, it's a like, it's like, it's like Julia Roberts thing. It's right. Like this kind of magnetic movie star glow that he has. Oh, he does. That is very disarming. And, and so he's very charming with Harry, too, which is what I wanted. So it's not straightforward. You, you, I think people are on Harry's side because I, mean, I feel that with the audiences that they, they're sort of going wrong with him. But really, you don't, you don't quite know what Harry's going to do. It sounds like a thriller. That's wonderfully explained. Thank you, David Kale. Appreciate it. Uh, let me ask you um, another question. When, when you are trying to make ends meet, over the years, maybe now, maybe at this moment, it's it's easier. How 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 challenging is it to make ends meet as a writer, as an actor? It's it's. I don't think the challenge of it's ever gone away. And there's periods because I've been doing it full time for for since 1985. That there's periods where it gets really scary, and there's periods where you know it's like any kind of longer term career there's periods where there's a lot of stuff going on and then there's periods almost directly alongside where there's nothing happening and I know I, I've sampled both and I certainly know what it's like when things completely grind to a halt but the um, and, it, and it does get to a point where it did with me because I can't really do anything I don't have any skills to offer the world that are very useful. And when I was, the job that I had was, I was I worked in a mailroom for, for five years and, and I worked in a record store before that for years. And it's like, what do I do? I, you know, I have, a, I, I don't know what I would do if this does 
actually grind to a halt. So then there's that, there's, there's that, that, that fear is, doesn't really go away. I mean, right now there's, there's really wonderful things going on. It's a very exciting time for me personally, but the, and with what, with my work, but it's, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I know that things can change very quickly for the good or bad in this kind of territory. That it could suddenly, in a few months, be really quiet again. It's so there's it's like flying without a net. That's for sure. But uh, but I sort of hang in there. It's the only thing I know how to do, and I, and I love it. You know, it drives me crazy, and I love it. It's a, it's a it's a, but it's a long term relationship. <laughs> yeah, well put, well put. Many of the artists that I uh, talk with for the program say something similar. Really, like I, there's nothing else that I want to do. Nothing else that I really think I could do. And uh, this is who I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it is kind of. It is when when you. I mean, there's been periods. I mean, not that not so long ago where I thought, what am I going to do? And um, thankfully, Harry Harry Clark has stepped in and <laughs> is uh, saving the day at least for now. <laughs> but the. Um, you are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question on a, in another area that uh, you've uh, excelled in. Well, writing songs for people like Debbie Harry and Elvis Costello, two two amazing artists in, in my opinion. How did yeah, how did too. yeah how how did that happen? And and what songs actually have you had had something to do with for well, those artists? But, you know, I was working with this band called the Jazz Passengers. Oh, who yeah. were sure. I did this show called Smooch Music that they I basically had half of the Jazz Passengers were playing. Roy Nathanson wrote the music, and he was it, it, he co-leads the Jazz Passengers with Curtis Folks. And then in '95, I think it was Hal Wilner, this great album producer was going to produce an album of Jazz Passengers originals that would have vocals. And on each track would be a different singer. And I was asked to write some of the lyrics for the album. And, and I wrote for for uh, a, a song for Jimmy Scott, the great, great Jimmy Scott. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Debbie was on the record. Um, and uh, a performance with John Kelly, a fabulous performance artist, and uh, Freddy Johnston. Um, there was a whole, Mavis Staples was on the record, it was Jeff Buckley. It was a really eclectic mix of wonderful, wonderful people. And the album was a, quite a success, and they wanted, the band needed to tour with a singer who could do all these different styles and had a sense of humor and a, a wit and vocally could pull it off. And they asked Debbie Harry, who Blondie was not not active at that moment. And so Debbie started touring with them as, as the lead singer. And and Elvis Costello heard the record, I, I was assumed by Hal. And Elvis liked the record and started singing the songs with the jazz passengers. So these were all Jazz passenger songs that, that that they were singing of mine, but um, but Elvis has sung I think three of them, 
live. And Debbie's sung quite a few and has recorded, I think, five or six of them. But uh, but that's, I mean, to to be in the audience and hear the two of them is that's that's one of the high points of my artistic life. And and being in the studio with Jimmy Scott was heaven. I mean, some of the because I'm such a music geek to begin with. These are people I've admired for years, and to actually hear my lyrics being sung by them is I mean, just, it's beyond the beyond. It's so <laughs> thrilling to me. <laughs> yeah, I can hear it. I can hear it. I can hear it in your voice. And for me, too, if I, that, you know, that's just hard to even imagine being in the audience. It has to be a bit surreal. It really is. And there was one concert that they did in England at the Royal Festival Hall, and I went over there to see it because I grew up in England and this venue meant so much to me and it was packed and Debbie and Elvis were Elvis was it was largely Debbie with the passengers and, and Elvis came on and sang two of my songs it was like a guest spot it was transcendent it was they were incredible they were in, they were in such great voice too and the audience went nuts and I went nuts it was it was heaven hmm. wonderful wonderful thank you for sharing that um, uh, okay um, again David Kale on the program Troubadours and Rock on Tours a pleasure having you on uh, playwright, actor, lyricist, artist generally speaking a couple of more minutes we have I'd, I'd like to ask a, f- uh, a couple more questions if you don't mind um, yeah let's see here now we, we're talking about some of your stage productions and uh, you know you're an actor too uh, you've acted in uh TV, film, on stage for your monologues in particular. Uh, Pollock, I saw. Is that the the movie about the artist? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was that uh, Ed Harris? It was Ed Harris directed it, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I and played Pollock. Yeah, I saw that. You were yeah. in that flick. I'm in that flick. Wow. What a part. Yeah. That must... I'm pr- proud to be part of that film. Yeah, that's a great film. Great film. Um, now, how do you? How would you compare? You said you started on film. In film, how would you compare being on stage in a live setting as to, as to uh, you know, being an artist in the context of of uh, you know the big screen and, and and trying to capture something and energy for the big screen? Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't. I seem to be the only one that thinks this, but I think the I think acting in films is much harder than acting on stage. Uh, for me, for me, it is. At least, I, it's what I. Uh, it's it's because I grew up. I'm so immersed in music and movies all, all my life. The movies meant a great deal to me, and it was always. Yeah, I was like a such a movie fan, um, but just how to act in the movie. I mean, to be absolutely relaxed and also ready to. You have to ch- you, you have to be ready to change everything on a dime. Anything that you've prepared, it has to be. You have to be so flexible, and also there's so much waiting around with most movies, and they can you can suddenly you can be sitting literally be sitting in a room for 17 hours waiting to start, and then suddenly they come in and say, "Okay, we're, we're going." You, I mean that that bringing into action thing and being absolutely relaxed because the camera picks up on tension 
in a way that I feel like the stage can kind of absorb it. But I, I find it much more challenging, but it's really the thing that I, 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 I prefer acting in films than, I, than acting on stage, outside my own work. But you find it harder to act in film than on stage. But I find it harder. I, I do, I do, uh, I, I find it, it might be because I don't do it very often. I think if I did it every, constantly, I think you get into, a, a, fr- a friend of mine um, made, uh, is a film director, and she said, like, what well, she was talking about actors that she worked with, and she said the thing about them is they're in such great shape because they do it all the time. They can really access, you. if you ask them to break down, they can break down. You know, it's just, they, they're very fluid with this because because they're doing it all the time. And I think it's a little bit like athletics mm-hmm. that or, or just exercise that if, because I, you know, I, I, I erratically do it. So it's, it's, it's like I have to kind of start up again in a way. And there's things like remembering lines. I think when you're doing it all the time, you don't worry about that. But I, I'll tend to worry. I'm going to forget the lines and derail the scene. There's um, more time like to worry, just, I suppose, because you're sitting around waiting. <laughs> Whereas on stage, yeah, it's just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going. You're on. That's it. You're just going, and, and, and you know, I, I just worked on a film where several scenes were shot in one take. It was a seven-minute take, and I come into it. The camera is just following the leads from a van to a bill, getting across in the parking lot into a building, getting on an elevator, coming out of the elevator, and then running into me. And I have to say a few lines. And I was so afraid that I was going to forget the lines or scramble something, and it derailed this gigantically ambitious <laughs> shot. That kind of a thing. You don't get that in the theater. We get other. There's other challenges, great challenges in the theater. Not not to say that theater is easy. No, it just certainly is not. But I do, I do. Um, I, I, I I don't know. The, the pressure is really on. Plus, you can sometimes you only get to do it once in a movie and you know that's it um, I mean oftentimes you don't there's more than once but you know there are there's, I've certainly done things in films where I did one take and that's that's what's in the film yeah it's like um, the old jazz musicians they say we're doing this once or twice and I think it was Thelonious Monk used to tell his musicians if you mess up the second the second time that's it you're going to have to live with it because it's going to be printed and, and it's there for eternity yeah yeah, that's it. It's, it's it's like that with movies. I mean, that's what they they remind me. Making an album, making a movie feel feel related to me in my head at least. Just that that thing. It's like capturing that spont- spontaneity, and when it works, it's fantastic. Yeah. But but you know, it's, if if it's wonky and you don't get it, you don't get it. Movies move on. You know, they'll be shooting the next scene, and you're just kicking yourself that you just did it wrong you know you could have done it better that kind of scenario which with the theater you can maybe fix it the next night or try and fix it the next night the next performance but with the movies that's it beautiful great great comparison well we have uh, time for just one more question Mr. Kale and that is what is the importance of stage productions for you as a person and art in general? Let's just put it that art in general for you as a person and for humanity 
in, in general. So what's the importance of, of art in society for you as a person and for humanity in general? Oh, my God. That's such a complicated question. You have 90 seconds. Um, I have 90 <laughs> no, seconds. I'm just kidding. To, <laughs> to fix the world. Yeah. Um, Through <laughs> art. You know, I, the, 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 thing that I, the thing that I want from, from theater and music and movies uh, partly is to, to have a greater sense of being alive. And, and to be uh, to um, make me feel fully alive, or make me make me realize something that I hadn't known before, whether it be personal or something of the world. But it's a very complicated question to, to answer in thirty seconds. Yeah, unfair, for unfair for sure. But brutal. <laughs> but I think I, I think you shared a great answer. I mean, it makes sense to me. And I, you know, you are obviously a very talented individual, and I, I, I'm very uh, happy and uh, I, I, may I say honored that you were on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And I look forward to more of your work in the future, David Kale. Oh, thank you very much. Really, a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you, sir.
Kiss today goodbye. One day, a long time ago, I was walking the streets of our depressed former coal town, and I turned onto Wyoming Avenue. The street was blocked off to traffic, and in front of the Globe store, one of our two main department stores, sat the showmobile, a traveling stage that brought song, dance, and theater to our neighborhoods. On the stage, a man and a woman, local thespians, were singing show tunes and popular songs. At one point in the show, the man sat on a stool and sang What I Did for Love from a chorus line. It was the first time I heard it. When he finished the song, I went right to the record department of the Globe store, that's how long ago this was, and bought the original cast recording. And I've been listening to the show on vinyl, on tape, on CD, in performance, and in my head ever since. Now, I was no stranger to show tunes when I heard that song. I had grown up on old Hollywood musicals on TV and regularly watched variety shows, from Ed Sullivan on down, which featured much crooning of movie and Broadway standards. At the time, people my age bought Led Zeppelin and Mott the Hoople albums. I purchased cast albums, Pippin, The Wiz, and movie soundtracks, Cabaret, Funny Lady. My mother was a fan of show tunes as well, and would sometimes torment me in the early mornings with my own cast albums, sending Andy's Pay On to Tomorrow, Only Being a Day Away, booming through the upstairs of our house. I listened to a chorus line many times before I saw it on stage, on Broadway, and in touring shows. And as the title aptly states, it's a show about dancers. In particular, dancers auditioning for a Broadway chorus line. So, a musical about a musical, which many musicals are, and have been since the beginning of musicals. In this musical, the dancers tell their life stories to the mostly off-stage director-choreographer auditioning them. During the show, they temporarily leave behind the anonymity of the chorus line and become characters. The characters are based on real dancers, and their stories evolved from workshops conducted by the director-choreographer Michael Bennett. They tell how they became dancers. They tell about their insecurities. They tell about their dysfunctional families, before the word dysfunction was a common use. They tell about their sexuality, their quirks, their fears, their dreams. The creators, Bennett, composer Marvin Hamlish, lyricist Edward Kleban, book writers James Kirkwood Jr. and Nicholas Dante, forged the dancers' stories into a moving celebration of and lament for life in this business called show. As I said, I heard the show before I saw it, a not unusual occurrence, and what especially struck me the first time I put the record on the turntable, and strikes me every time I listen to the score, is the brilliance of Kleban's lyrics. Before his life's changing success with the show, he was a producer at Columbia Records, 
and struggled to become a Broadway composer. The musical about Cleveland, written by Linda Klein and Lonnie Price, a class act, features songs he wrote which never made it to the stage. In the musical, there's a song called Friday at Four about the weekly, life-saving musical theater workshop he attended. After Chorus Line opened and transformed musical theater, Kleban was never able to match its success, and he died from throat cancer at 48. In his will, he designated his Chorus Line fortune to fund a foundation that gives grants to promising lyricists and librettists. In a chorus line, his lyrics tackle the trials and tribulations of adolescence, Hello 12, Hello 13, the case for plastic surgery made by a career hoofer, Dance 10, Looks 3, the consolations of dance class for unhappy young girls, At the Ballet, the strangeness and cruelty of an acting class, Nothing, and the inescapable impulse to dance, The Music and the Mirror. The final number, one, is both a study of star quality and specialness, one singular sensation, every little move she makes, and at the same time, a moment for the chorus members to shine, one by one, as they take their bows in gold lame, top hats, and tails. Original costumes by Theona V. Aldridge. His lyrics are slangy and sexy and touching and sentimental and borderline maudlin. His subject is showbiz, after all. They're funny, sad, precise, and character-driven. They encompass pop culture, bad families, neuroses, personal tragedy, and hard-won triumph. The musical is about professionally anonymous types becoming individuals during the show and before your eyes, and Kleban's lyrics perfectly embody the themes of the show. Kiss Today Goodbye, the dancer Diana Morales sings after one of her friends has been injured during a tap sequence and perhaps ended his career. The Sweetness and the Sorrow. She sings her song in response to a question posed by the choreographer. What do you do when you can't dance anymore? A dancer's career is ephemeral, fruit-fly-like in duration, like, well, life. The show is about loss, and the specter of AIDS shadows its history. Many of its makers and original cast members suffered early deaths as the show ran and ran on Broadway. It's about doing what you love while you can, in full knowledge of what looms ahead. It's about going on, again and again and again. I'm watching Cisco Peter Pat Said I can do that I can do that Knew every step right off the bat Said I can do that I can do that 
One morning, sis won't go to dance class. I grab her shoes in tights and all, but my foot's too small, so I stuff her shoes with extra socks. Run seven blocks in nothing flat. Hell, I can do that. to class and had it made and so I stayed the rest of my life all thanks to sis now married and fat I can do this that it can do I can do that Hooray! One man, many aspects of character, coiffed through forced parity. One woman, many avenues of charity, despite grave expanses of disparity. And the wind cries nary, a moment for either choice of living, taking and giving, up until the end, starting from the beginning. Can you see? Can you hear? Can you feel the artistic heart and soul? You are on Shakespeare's noted stage. You are the world's greatest sage. Then into the dirt you lay. So today, hip hip hooray!
And there you have it, episode 268 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, actor, playwright, lyricist, and all-around great guy, David Kale. Thank you so much for being on the show, and a nice hello to the whole cast and crew of Harry Clark. We also like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Michael Pavis, the great doctor, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, and of course, these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Frank Sinatra, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, the 2006 Broadway revival cast of A Chorus Line, our friend Nellie Mackay, and of course, Terrence Blanchard and Branford Marsalis, too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.